Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. My name is Dr. Suzanne Boyle. I'm a nephrologist at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and today, we're going to be exploring the case of a 22-year-old male with hematuria. If you are following along in the Beyond the Pearls book, this is Case 39, written by Drs. Ravi Lakdawala and Dr. Joseph Abdelmalek. So let's meet our patient. Our patient is a 22-year-old male who presents for outpatient evaluation of three days of cola-colored urine that started spontaneously. He has not had any pain or burning with urination. He also has had an upper respiratory infection for the past week. So what is the significance of dark-colored urine? So when evaluating dark-colored urine, you must determine whether the etiology is blood or pigment. True hematuria signifies the presence of red blood cells and can be classified as either gross, that is visible to the eyes, or microscopic which requires microscopy for diagnosis. Once the presence of red blood cells is confirmed, the source of hematuria can be characterized as coming from the kidney, that is intrarenal or upper urinary tract bleeding, or from outside the kidney, which is extrarenal or lower urinary tract. Intrarenal sources of bleeding include glomerulonephritis, vasculitis, pyelonephritis, and malignancy. Causes of extrarenal bleeding include nephrolithiasis, bladder or urethral infections, malignancy, or trauma. Our patient denies any recent trauma or accidents, sexual intercourse, urethral discharge, urinary frequency, or urinary urgency. He denies any known past medical history or surgeries. He's of Asian heritage, and he is currently a college student. He denies any tobacco use, but endorses use of alcohol occasionally. He has no allergies and does not take any medications. There is no family history, hypertension, malignancy, or kidney disease. On our exam, he's afebrile. His pulse is 75 beats per minute. His blood pressure is 144 by 87 millimeters of mercury. His body mass index is 22. 
He's alert and sitting comfortably. His jugular veins are not distended. His pulse rate is regular, and his lungs are cleared to auscultation without any wheezes. He has no abdominal tenderness or distension. He has one plus pitting edema in his lower extremities. His joints show no effusion or evidence of arthritis. He has no skin rashes, and his neurologic exam is normal. So this patient has elevated blood pressure in our office. What is the significance of this patient's hypertension? Well, about 95% of patients with hypertension have what's called primary or essential hypertension, where blood pressure is greater than 140 by 90 millimeters of mercury with no specific identifiable etiology. The likely pathogenesis for elevated blood pressure in these individuals is multifactorial, including genetics, congenital renal impairment, and kidney injury leading to impaired sodium excretion with subsequent volume expansion and elevated blood pressure. Secondary hypertension, on the other hand, can be due to renal parenchymal or glomerular diseases, renal vascular disease, endocrine diseases such as Cushing syndrome or hyperaldosteronism, preeclampsia or eclampsia, as well as obstructive sleep apnea and drug-induced causes due to sympathomimetics, glucocorticoids, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and oral contraceptives. Risk factors for a secondary cause of hypertension include the sudden onset of hypertension, very young or very old age at onset of hypertension, and resistant hypertension. Resistant hypertension is defined by the inability to control blood pressure while on at least three optimally dosed antihypertensive medications, of which one is a diuretic. In this case, the presence of hypertension in a 22-year-old without a family history should suggest a secondary cause, and we should take this very seriously. We proceed with some laboratory testing for our patient. This reveals a normal, complete blood cell count, normal electrolytes, creatinine, and liver function. We obtain a urine sample, and we perform a urine dipstick, which is positive for 3-plus blood and 2-plus protein, but it's negative for leukocyte esterase, nitrites, ketones, bilirubin, and glucose. A microscopic analysis of the urine shows more than 50 red blood cells per high-powered field, among which there are some dysmorphic red cells, 6 to 10 red blood cell casts per high-powered field, and no white blood cells per high-powered field. There is also no crystals and no bacteria. So we should be very suspicious for a glomerular pathology given that we have dysmorphic red cells, and RBC casts. Both of these indicate glomerular hematuria or intrarenal hematuria, consistent with glomerular nephritis. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Okay, so that being said, what is our differential diagnosis at this point? Well, this is a patient um, who's young. He's of Asian descent. He has dark-colored urine in the setting of a viral upper respiratory infection, and he has hypertension. This is in conjunction with the presence of numerous red blood cells under microscopy, of which some are dysmorphic and there are red cell casts. Again, this indicates glomerular injury. This presentation is most consistent with nephritic syndrome in which there is inflammation of the glomerulus. Characteristics of this syndrome can include edema, hematuria, and hypertension. There are several glomerular diseases that may present with nephritic syndrome, including immunoglobulin A or IgA nephropathy, post-infectious glomerular nephritis, lupus nephritis, anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibody or ANCA vasculitis, anti-glomerular basement membrane or anti-GBM disease, and membroproliferative glomerular nephritis. That being said, now that we are very suspicious for glomerular nephritis, specifically in nephritic syndrome, what labs can we order to help narrow our differential diagnosis? Other lab tests that may be of value to us at this point to discern causes of acute glomerular nephritis include complement levels, blood and urine cultures, anti-GBM antibodies, ankytiters, as well as an anti-nuclear antibody screen, otherwise known as an ANA, which can often be seen with lupus nephritis. We obtain quantification of the patient's urine protein, and we do this with a urine protein to creatinine ratio, which is reported back as two. This is consistent with approximately two grams of protein excretion in a 24-hour period. For your reference, the normal amount of protein excretion in somebody with healthy kidneys is approximately 150 milligrams of protein. This patient has 2,000 milligrams or 2 grams of proteinuria. While this is not consistent with nephrotic range proteinuria, which is typically 3 to 3.5 grams of proteinuria in a day, this is still a significant amount of proteinuria. His complement levels, including C3 and C4, are normal. ANA, ANCA, and anti-GBM antibodies are all negative. Blood and urine cultures, as well as an anti-streptolysin O-titer, are also negative. So we still don't have an answer based on these serologies. So the next step is to pursue a kidney biopsy. Kidney biopsy is the only way to ascertain a diagnosis in this case. The kidney biopsy will help provide us with information towards a specific diagnosis as well as prognostic information and aid in planning therapy for certain diseases. Some indications for kidney biopsy include nephrotic syndrome of unknown etiology, nephritic syndrome, like as is this case, acute kidney injury of unknown etiology or with an active urine sediment, which means that we see either white blood cell casts or red blood cell casts, systemic diseases that are associated with kidney disease, kidney transplant dysfunction, as well as any other unexplained kidney disease or familial disorders. So if we are going to offer him kidney biopsy, we need to make sure that he does not have a contraindication to kidney biopsy. So what are the contraindications to kidney biopsy? 
Contraindications include uncontrolled high blood pressure, bleeding diaphysis, hydronephrosis, as well as widespread cystic disease or kidney malignancy. Having only one kidney or a solitary kidney is not an absolute contraindication to a kidney biopsy, but should be considered in planning. What information can be obtained from a kidney biopsy? Well, once a kidney biopsy is obtained, the specimen is examined under light microscopy, immunofluorescence, and electron microscopy. Light microscopy is used to evaluate cellularity, deposition of abnormal material, necrosis, and capillary wall thickness in the glomerulus. Light microscopy also allows for assessment of the renal tubules. Immunofluorescence allows for visualization of immunoglobulins and complement components in the glomeruli and tubules. And electron microscopy allows for visualization of immune complexes and ultrastructural changes in the glomeruli and other parts of the kidney. So we recommend kidney biopsy for this patient to obtain a diagnosis, and he consents. We obtain the biopsy, which then shows increased cells in the mesangial portion of the glomerulus. If you're following in the Beyond the Pearls book, you can see the light microscopy in figure 39.3, which will show you the mesangial proliferation. On immunofluorescence, there is positive staining for IgA. And the electron microscopy also reveals IgA immune complexes in the mesangium. There are no crescents seen on the kidney biopsy. Crescents can be seen in very severe cases of glomerular inflammation, where the inflammation is so severe that the glomerular basement membrane is literally ruptured. And under light microscopy, you can see a shape that looks like a crescent or a moon. Based on these biopsy data, we make a diagnosis of IgA nephropathy for our patient. IgA nephropathy is the most common primary glomerulonephritis in the world, occurring in about 25 to 50 per 10,000 people. This disease can present as asymptomatic hematuria with normal renal function or can present as a rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis with renal failure in weeks to months. The glomerular disease is more common in Asians and Caucasians with a peak incidence in the second and third decades of life. As is the case in our patient, a renal biopsy typically shows the presence of IgA in the mesangium on immunofluorescence and electron microscopy. Patients with a rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis may have rapid loss of kidney function with the presence of glomerular crescents on renal biopsy, which are indicative of severe injury to the capillary in the glomerulus. So what are the treatment options for our patient? Blood pressure control is, first of all, very important in delaying progression of kidney disease with guidelines indicating a blood pressure goal of less than 130 to 80 millimeters of mercury in those with proteinuria. Hypertension and glomerulonephritis occurs in the setting of sodium and water overload. Initial therapy should therefore include behavioral modifications with sodium restriction, moderate exercise, weight loss, and smoking cessation. Angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, or also known as ACE inhibitors, and angiotensin receptor blockers, also known as ARBs, are first-line therapies for patients with hypertension and proteinuria 
and they have been shown to control proteinuria independent of their effects on blood pressure. In patients with significant proteinuria arising creatinine, immunosuppression with high-dose glucocorticoids and occasionally cyclophosphamide may be added to the aforementioned supportive therapy. So we counsel our patient on a low-salt diet for his blood pressure and swelling, and he started on an ACE inhibitor, which controls his blood pressure. However, he continues to have hematuria and proteinuria. He started on glucocorticoids for six months with remission of his hematuria and his proteinuria. Another important pearl to note in this case is that the patient on presentation also had an upper respiratory infection the past week. We call this synpharyngitic hematuria, meaning that the respiratory infection comes at the same time as the hematuria. Oftentimes, viral infections in the mucosa of the respiratory tract can correlate with exacerbations in IgA. Well, this concludes this Beyond the Pearls podcast. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.